Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. One of the best books I read this summer was Stephen Duncombe's Dream, Reimagining Progressive Politics in an Age of Fantasy. Written during the last days of the presidency of George W. Bush, it was a plea for progressive politics to embrace imagination, spectacle, wit, sensuality, and what one reviewer called a joyful aesthetic of dissent. I loved the book's assertion that unless progressives acknowledge and accept a politics of imagination, desire and spectacle, and most important, make it ethical and make it our own, we will bring about our ruin rather than preservation. Today, Stephen lives two lives. One is that of a professor at New York University where he teaches about history and the politics of mass media and writes books. His second life is with the Centre for Artistic Activism, which he co-founded with artist Steve Lambert. He travels the world teaching activists to be a bit more like artists and artists to be a bit more like activists. Noble work. I started our conversation by noting that politics in the US have changed just a little since the book was written and asking how he now feels the book translates into the age of Trump. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, the book was more prescient than I had imagined. (laughs) And, And ostensibly, another version is coming out with an introduction about sort of how to make sense of dream in the age of Trump. But the the bottom line of uh, sort of the, the undergrading of dream was this idea that I had coming out of my work as an activist um, that sort of a disappointment with liberal left ways of approaching politics. It seemed to me that the liberal left was very much invested in an enlightenment idea and ideal of how politics works, which goes something like this. A group of people get together in a 16th century European coffee house. They have full access to information. They have reasonable discussions and make, therefore, reasoned uh, re- uh, responses and, therefore, go out and do reasonable things, um, which, of course, is very much the idea and ideal of democracy. And my experience um, was that that's not how democracy was working. Democracy was much more a play of sign and symbol, story and spectacle. And so it seemed to me that the liberal left was sort of locked in an outmoded idea of how politics actually worked. And I would looked around at that time and it seemed like the people that really embraced this idea of a modern landscape of sign and symbol, story and spectacle were the right wing. Now, since that time, of course, um, and what is why I say I was I was. Uh, unfortunately very prescient, is that that right wing which peddles in fantasy has only grown. If you look around the world, right wing nationalism is on its rise and core to right wing nationalism is the peddling of fantasies and the using of spectacles. Um, And so the book was really about kind of was a wake up lefty. Um, We better figure out how to operate on this terrain and how to use these sort of aesthetic um, approaches um, or we're going to be left in the dust. And it was also a plea to learn how to use them ethically um, and to try to figure out how to create a spectacle um, in a way that didn't do violence to the beliefs that the liberal left have, things about equality, democracy, and even a belief in truth. Um, And I thought it could be done. So that's part of it. Then I went looking for sort of where we could learn 
these lessons. And I picked four sites um, that were immensely popular with everyday people and immensely unpopular with the left. And they were Las Vegas um, advertising uh, hyperviolent video games like Grand Theft Auto and celebrity magazines. <laughs> and reasoning that, you know, and this is something that goes all the way back to uh, um, uh, both Walter Lippmann writing in the 1920s, but also William James um, writing in 1915, where if we want to be popular, we've got to understand popular culture. And part of understanding popular culture um, is to understand, sort of have a roadmap, uh, be re a roadmap revealed of popular desire. And so I was really interested in, say, looking at celebrity magazines, figuring out what sort of basic human need they met, and then translating that into an ethical leftist politics. Um, and I did that for all four of those sites. And then the last part is a meditation on what an ethical spectacle might look like. You you wrote in there that uh, uh, progressives today seem to have forgotten how to dream. Yeah. I wonder if you could just reflect on that. And also a question that I've asked lots of people I've spoken to is how would you assess the state of health of our collective imagination in 2018? Sure. So to answer the first part of um, which is that the, the left seems um, to have forgotten how to dream. Um, I think the key word there is forgotten, because, of course, the left was sort of had possession of political dreams for centuries. Um, it was the dream of democracy against um, the aristocracy and the idea of the natural order, of course, um, that once motivated. people. It was the dream of anarchism and socialism that also motivated people. Then it was other dreams like the civil rights movement, quite literally, you know, Martin Luther King intoning, I have a dream. And then really probably reaches its peak in the 1960s. Um, when you have these sort of phantasmagorical dreams, which are often aligned with artistic movements, and I'm thinking May of 68 at this moment, and philosophical movements like the Situationists, who are really daring people to imagine the unimaginable. Um, take your dreams and make them to reality, to use a slogan from the May 68. Um, and then something happened. I think part of what happened is the collapse of May 68 um, and the collapse of those dreams, the so collapse of the Soviet Union. And all of a sudden, the left ended up sort of taking on the mantle of realism. Um, and you can see that happening today up into 2018 is by and large the liberal left response to right wing nationalist fantasies is to quote facts at them and say, but you've got it wrong. That's not really what happened. That's that that's uh, an alternative fact. Here is the real fact. Here it is, which is fine. I'm a big believer in empirical evidence. I'm a big believer in fact. But facts need to be animated in order for people to care about them. Uh, William James went on to say, um, truth is something which happens to an idea. And by that, he wasn't being a relativist. What he was doing is being an honest acknowledger of the truth is something which is attached to an idea that people have to believe it is true, whether it's a fact, an empirical fact, or it's a bald faced lie. And the nationalist right is very, very good at creating truths based on bald faced lies, whereas the liberal left tends to just trot out the facts and say, well, actually, that's not true. Migration has not led to a rise in crime and so on and so forth, but not been able necessarily to make that into a story that people want to hear or a symbol or an image that resonates with people. But once in a while it happens by accident. And I'm thinking of the photojournalist 
um, who captured the picture of the soldier uh, picking up the young boy on the beach. Um, on the fringes of the left, there's some of the best artistic activists I know, people who are actively creating stories. Um, and even is starting to sneak into sort of the NGO world in which uh, pays a lot of my bills as an activist, where there's an acknowledgement that both story and artistry actually matter, that facts are not enough. But if you look at the mainstream political parties of both Europe and the United States um, on the center left, they're firmly in the camp of uh, the reality principle. And your assessment of the state of health of our collective imagination? I think what worries me is I think that uh, half the population has a very unhealthy and vibrant collective imagination. And they are the people that are saying Britain for the British, um, America for white people, um, kick the Jews out of Hungary, and so on and so forth, all of which are absolute fantasies. I mean, none of which are actually going to happen, right? Um, but it is a fantasy. And so I think that they're actually, they're, they're, it's quite a vibrant fantasy. It's just horrific. Whereas I think those of us who are horrified by that, um, we have um, an atrophied, atrophied um, imagination insofar as our imaginations are being set by and large reacting against the right wing, um, which is, no, we want a multicultural society. But that what does that look like? What does that feel like? What is the joy in that? And so on and so forth. So I'll tell you uh, uh, an exercise we do in our um, in our workshops. Um, one of the things we, add, we 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 do is we go around the, with these professional activists that we work with and we ask them, what would winning look like? And they usually say something like, well, I'm working on a campaign. And I remember this particularly working in uh, Houston, Texas, with a group of mothers whose children had been incarcerated. And they said, well, what a win would look like is the passage of House Bill number 217, which would allow families to have more rights and access to their children who are incarcerated, which is reasonable. That's what they wanted. That's what they were working on. Um, and said, we said, OK, that's great. Guess what? We're here from the future. And you did it. Now, what do you want to do? And then they would say something like, well, laws are fine to be passed, but you really need to have them implemented. And so we need to have them implemented and respected by law enforcement agencies all across Texas. We waited a beat and said, well, guess what? You've done that as well. So what's next? And slowly, literally to over 20 minutes, they would say, well, actually, I want a world in which my kids don't have to turn to crime or get pulled into crime. Say, okay, well, that's happened. And then I want a world without crime. And then I want a world without police. And then I want a world without prisons. And we got to a place like, okay, you've gotten rid of prisons. What happens now? And they say, well, we'd actually just live together and we'd enjoy each other. We wouldn't worry. And then we asked them to describe what that would feel like, what that would look like and what that would sound like. And they get into vivid detail of literally the sound of children laughing, the smell, in this case, of waffles, um, what the sun feels like on their back. And then we'd stop them and say, this is where we start. We start with the dream. That is, nobody gives a fucking rat's ass about H.R. Bill three, you know, 217 except for you and your opponents. But if you want to reach the majority of the population, 
you have to create this greater dream because they can access it at all sorts of different points and go on there with you. But that's a hard work for activists to do because oftentimes they're very much caught up in reacting to the world which is around them instead of envisioning and imagining a better world. To tease something apart that you said there about the distinction between imagination and fantasy. So, you know, it's it's a bit of a semantic thing, um, but one of the ways... What I, what I distinguish in my book is the difference between dreams and fantasies. A fantasy, and, you know, I don't know if this is real. This is just way, you know, like all semantics, I just you kind of put one in one category and the other in category. But how I categorize them is a fantasy is when you mistake something for reality. Okay? So I have a fantasy, for example, that I, um, you know, if I buy this shampoo... I will have a full head of hair or something banal like that, right? Or political fantasies, a classic would be Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will, in which she created an image of Nazi strength and purpose and so on and so forth. It wasn't really there, okay? She created it in the hopes that reality would catch up to the fantasy. And that's what propagandists do all the time. Dreams, I think, are quite different. When you wake up from a dream, it may have felt real, but you know it's a dream. Um, and this goes back to this idea of the ethical spectacle is that what I was really interested in, particularly in Las Vegas, was that an idea of a fantasy that people know are fantasies, yet still capture them nonetheless. And Las Vegas, of course, works like this. Las Vegas is, you know, there's the Eiffel Tower, which is right next to the Palagio, which is right next to the pyramids of Luxor. Nobody really fucking believes them. Right. But they still have fun with them nonetheless. Professional wrestling works that way. Brechtian theater works that way. Um, it's the notion that you can have a fantasy and understand that it isn't real, it's just a dream. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a complex idea, but it's absolutely essential. After I wrote that book, I went on to edit Thomas More's Utopia and produced a, an, an edited version of Thomas More's Utopia. And what I realized is that's exactly what Thomas More was doing 500 years ago creating something and at the same time disassembling it. And so you could have this sort of experience of a new world, yet never forget that it was just the fantasy of this author. You used the, you used the term uh, a politics of the imagination, yes. that we need a politics of the imagination. Could you just expand a bit on what that would look like? Not quite sure what it would look like. And I'd be suspicious if I was the one who came up with its parameters. Um, I think one of the, the problems of utopias throughout history is it's usually created as a blueprint by a small elite bunch of people and then forced and foisted upon the rest of the people. Um, you know, certainly that's what happened in the Soviet Union. It's what happened in Germany during the Nazi era. It's what happened in China under Mao. And those types of utonia, utopias are absolutely dangerous. So I'm very interested in a collective dreaming or a collective imagining. So I have a friend in Scotland. Um, who did this great project. He created, what is it? he did these workshops. And I think he said at its top, he reached one in every thousand of Glaswegians. Everybody from firemen to preschool uh, students uh, to, uh, you know, doctors and so on and so forth. And what he did is he created workshops where they would imagine Glasgow and I think it was 2031, right? Because what he wanted to do was try to take stock of a collective imagination. Um, and to me, ex interventions like that 
are really interesting because they're really prompting this idea of what a collective imagination might look like. Um, because it goes back to this idea of the ethical spectacle. How do you how do you traffic in this very dangerous ter- territory in which uh, fascists uh, and totalitarians really kind of have ruled for most of uh, you know the 20th century? And how do you do it in such a way that actually is democratic? And so I think the way to do it is through these collective exercises. Uh, th- this idea of the spectacle, which. Uh which I, which I, like you say before, you know, came through the the Situationist movement and May '68 and so on. I wonder if you could just explain what is a spectacle and what are the ingredients of a good one. Sure, um, a spectacle. I mean, this is how I define it, um, and I use the word spectacle kind of just to piss people off. Um, again, it was like it was like studying Las Vegas and advertising and celebrities is. You know, everybody on the left hates spectacles. That's what the Nazis do. It's what Las Vegas does. So I was like, well, I'm going to reclaim spectacle. I could have used situation, you know, if I wanted to be nice to the situationists. Because um, I think in the end, I define it in a similar way. But for me, the spectacle is a dream made manifest in um, an image. Um, and But it also can be a dream made manifest in sound or a dream made manifest in, in performance. But it's taking the idea of a dream and communicating it in such a way that it resonates with other people. Um, and this is what artists do, which is why I'm very interested in working with artists. So that's what a spectacle does. Now, for me, it goes back to, well, what is an ethical spectacle? Because the Nazi spectacles were ethical according to their own standards, right? Advertising is ethical according to the standards of consumer capitalism. But if you're coming from a sort of a left of center or left leaning uh, position, then you have to first say, well, what are my ethics? And then second, how do I create a spectacle which amplifies and doesn't do violence to those ethics? So I think in Dream, and I might get this list wrong, I said that, well, let's start with what most left liberals would agree with. One, that we believe in egalitarianism. So that is, we need to have a spectacle which has active participation by as many people as possible. Um, two, we believe in democracy. Okay, and so that means what we need is a spectacle which isn't just run by one or two people, but everybody has a chance and choice in determining the shape that it has. Three, I think I believe in uh, reality. That is, is that we believe in empirical reality. And so, therefore, we need a spectacle which doesn't distort the truth, but instead performs the truth, makes the invisible visible. The civil rights movement was very good at doing this sort of work. Um, and, and the extension of that is we need a spectacle which everybody knows is just a spectacle and therefore is based in some sort of truth. I think I had a couple of other principles in there, but that's probably gets most of them. If there was one or two examples that for you would the best spectacle you ever saw. Yeah. What would, what, what would be one of I mean, it's so hard. There's so many of them. Um, because one of the things you do is you realize, as you go back in history, any good political movement has been using these sorts of spectacular techniques. Um, and that goes back to when we do our history section in our trainings, we start with Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and, you know, he's a really a master of spectacle. Or sometimes, depending on the group we're working with, we start with Moses or with the Prophet Muhammad. Is that, you know, all these people use these tools. 
um, both to critique the system that is, but also imagine a better system. But a more modern example I would use, which I think is a great use of spectacle, is um, Rosa Parks taking a seat on a bus in 1955, signal, uh, really kicking off the modern, in Montgomery, Alabama, um, kicking off the modern civil rights movement. Um, and it's an iconic photograph, right, of this woman, this seamstress, who was tired after a long day of work and refused to give up her bus, as was the custom, and uh, give up her bus seat, as was the custom in segregated South, therefore got arrested and triggered the bus boycott. It's a great myth. Uh, the reality was that she was an experienced political activist. She was the secretary of the local NAACP. She'd been trained at the Highlander Institute. Um, she wa- did what she did, knowing exactly what sort of a spectacular image it would create. Um, and that famous picture of her sitting on the bus, which probably in your mind you're conjuring up right now, um, was shot a year later. Of course it was shot a year later. No, there was no photographer there that would have been allowed to photograph that. And then if you get a, sometimes you get a wide shot of that and there's a white man scowling behind her, right? Well, who do you think that white man is? Well, in my mind, it was the guy she displaced, right? Or rather the guy she wouldn't give her seat up to who wanted to displace her. But of course he's not. Why would he sit for a formal picture? It's a, it's the local AP reporter. Um, who, as the photographer who's shooting the photograph, is like, I need some contrast. Hey, white guy, sit behind. And so the civil rights movement did this again and again and again. When Martin Luther King picked Birmingham, Alabama in 1963 to stage his desegregation protest, um, he, all those great pictures, horrific pictures, but great pictures of children being marched off to jail, dogs attacking uh, peaceful protesters and all of that, all of those came from that protest and really were instrumental in embarrassing the United States on a world stage when they're competing in a cold war with the Soviet Union and the passage of the Civil Rights Act one year later. What most people don't know is that was the second staging of that protest. It had been staged a year before in a different town and it had failed miserably. It failed because the southern sheriff in charge in that town in Georgia, just peacefully locked up everybody, put them in separate jails, and let them out a week later. And so they picked Birmingham, Alabama for the second stage because they knew that the head of police and fire department was an out-and-out racist, and they wanted him to overreact. And he did. And he created all those great pictures. Um, It was completely staged. Now, why is it ethical? It's ethical because... It wasn't creating reality. It was performing reality for cameras. It was making the invisible visible. The problem with segregation in the South and violence of white supremacy is it happened when nobody was taking pictures. It happened when the sun went down. It happened in black neighborhoods. It happened outside the glare of the media. And so the civil rights movement said, what we need to do is bring it out into the open. And we're going to do it by reperforming it and hoping that the whites react the way that we think they're going to react. And sure enough, that's what they did. There's a question that I've asked everybody that I've spoken to while I've been doing this, which is if uh, you had been elected as President Duncan um, two years ago, uh, <laughs> rather than the current incumbent, and you had run on a platform of 
make America imaginative again. So you had felt very strongly that the 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 challenges were so big that we needed to have a, a refocusing and prioritizing of imagination in education, in policy, in public life, in you know across across society. What might you do in your first hundred days in office? I think the first thing I would do is create a ministry of imagination. Um, and actually, believe it or not, I once ran across these two women um, in Mexico who worked in Mexico City under the mayor of Mexico City, who is now the president of Mexico, who worked under a ministry of imagination. Um, so uh, I, you know, so it's not that far fetched, and we'll see what happens. Uh, if this actually happens in Mexico. But you should look that up. Um, I'm not sure if that's the exact title, but I think it's pretty damn close. In any case, what I would do is I'd create a ministry of imagination, but I wouldn't stock it with people like me um, or the best artists that ever existed and so on and so forth. I think that's very dangerous. Um, instead, what I do is charge that ministry of, of imagination with doing the sort of work that my friend did in Glasgow, which is creating workshops that offered the space and gave the prompts, provided the prompts for people to begin to imagine on their own. Um, because I think that one is the only way we're going to generate a genuinely democratic imagination. It's also the way to flex those imaginary muscles or those muscles of imagination um, that have grown atrophy um, or have grown very ugly and disformed. Um, and, you know, so I think that, yeah, facilitating imagination as a pro as a, as a difference to providing it. Um, you know, I come my before I was ever an activist or a, a scholar, I played in a punk rock band and um, a series of punk rock bands. And I was completely terrible. Um, but the one thing I learned from punk rock was that being terrible at something it didn't mean you couldn't do it. There was no barrier to entry. <laughs> Um, and I think that sort of DIY ethos um, is absolutely central to my ideas of how imagination can work, because we really need a DIY imagination. You, that doesn't mean that there aren't skilled imagineers, um, but those skilled imagineers are not skilled in providing fantasies. We have enough of that already, but instead working with people to facilitate their own fantasies. Um, you, you you said there um, th about how for some people in society imagination has become ugly and disfigured or disformed. I can't remember the exact word you used. Um, do you have a sense of why that is? Because I interviewed Henry Giroux when I was researching this. Do you know Henry Giroux? Uh, uh, he he used this term. He talked about the Trump disimagination machine. And 